the co-founder of Apple Computer, entrepreneurial and creative genius Steve Jobs, died from pancreatic cancer on October 5th, 2011. Steve was the biological child of unmarried parents in 1955. His biological mother was Joanne Shebel, and she had been dating a Syrian immigrant named Abdofata Jandali. At the time, she became pregnant. Joanne's parents were adamantly against marriage to an Arab man, so under tremendous pressure from her father, she moved to San Francisco and gave birth to Steve. Paul and Clara Jobs were Armenian and unable to have children themselves, so the pair adopted Steve. Steve never met his biological father. He never mentioned his biological father in public, and he ignored him in private. Once Steve had been diagnosed with cancer, Mr. John Dolly, who was a casino executive in Reno, to be precise, it was at Boomtown Casino and Hotel near Verdi, just this side of the California line. John Dolly mailed him his medical history, hoping it could be helpful to his son. Steve never acknowledged receiving that medical information. And just months before Steve Jobs died, Jandali told a London tabloid that he wanted to meet his son. He said, I live in hope that before it's too late, he will reach out to me. Even to have just one coffee with him just once would make me a very happy man. Steve Jobs never responded to Jan Dolly's request for a reunion, and he died estranged from his biological father because reconciliation between them never happened. This morning we're addressing that word reconciliation. In a biblical sense, reconciliation describes a spiritual transaction that is invisible, undetectable, non-experiential, irreversible, unrepeatable, and permanent. And it happens simultaneous to someone's salvation, meaning reconciliation as a spiritual transaction happens at the precise microsecond someone receives Jesus. Notice the definition. A sinner comes to God as an enemy, and through reconciliation, he becomes a friend. A sinner comes to God as an enemy, and through reconciliation, he becomes a friend. The result is that there is now peace between God and the sinner, because through reconciliation, man is no longer at war against God. Colossians chapter 1 addresses this subject. I'm a linear person, that's how I think, but I'm not going through this text in a linear sense as I would normally do. Instead, we're going to move around because some of this text in the original language is inverted, meaning in translating from Greek into English, some of the phrases have been switched around. In verses 15 through 19, a fantastic text, Paul demonstrates that Jesus is God. And then after that, he proceeds to discuss the human need to be reconciled. We all have a need to be reconciled to God. Notice Colossians 1 verse 20. And by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, 
himself, meaning God the Father in particular, by him, Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross, the cross of Jesus. Notice the definition. The actual word reconcile means to meet again, to be reunited, to be at one to be at one God is ultimately going to reconcile all things to himself through his son, Jesus. Jesus is the reconciling agent. It is through Jesus that man and God can be reunited in peace. This phrase, reconciling all things to himself, means that at some future, a futuristic prophetical point, God, through his son Jesus, is going to reconcile to himself both mankind and all things in this material universe. God is going to create a new earth and new heavens. We are going to inhabit the new earth, and God is going to purge the universe of sin and sin's consequences. It is at that moment God and all things will together be reconciled and at peace. In the next verse, Paul discusses the need to be reconciled. He describes our pre-reconciled condition, our unsaved pre-reconciled condition as a non-Christian. This verse describes us pre-salvation. And in doing that, um, tells us our fundamental need to be reconciled. Verse 21, and you, that's us, who once were, Past tense, once were, this is our pre-salvation state. This is before Jesus. Who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled. Before salvation, we were said to be alienated from God. Alienated means isolated, estranged, separated, uh, cut off, just as Steve Jobs was estranged and alienated from his own father, before salvation we were estranged from God. In a literal sense, we were separated and cut off from God. Our sin separated us from God. Countless people have said to me, but I have always been a Christian. That statement reveals someone's ignorance because that's not possible. Someone might be a Christian all his adult life, but no one is a Christian his entire life because Christianity isn't genetic. No one is a Christian from birth. Becoming a Christian cannot happen until someone has matured enough to have a basic understanding about Jesus and then receive him for themselves. I was raised in a Christian bubble. I was raised inside a strong Christian environment. I was a pastor's kid. So salvation occurred much earlier on for me. I received Jesus at six years, two months, and five days of age. How do I know that? One, I was there. And I vividly remember that experience. I remember all the specifics about that experience. And then two, my mother wrote the date, the exact date of my salvation experience in the front of my Bible, and that's what I do now when I have the privilege of, of praying with someone to receive Jesus. I write the date down in the front of a Bible I give to them. On the opposite end of the scale, I have prayed with people to receive Christ who were in their 80s. So 
it can happen at different times and at different ages. Colossians chapter 1 teaches that prior to becoming a Christian and prior to this spiritual transaction called reconciliation that happens at salvation, we were alienated from God. And notice, we were also considered his enemies. We were God's enemies because of our wicked works. Our pre-salvation sins are described here as wicked works. That's interesting. God hates sin. And since we commit sin, God perceives us to be on the opposing team. And that makes us his enemies before salvation. Romans 5 verse 10. Or if when we were, notice past tense, when we were enemies, this is before salvation, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, Jesus. A non-Christian could argue, rightly argue, that he's not irreligious. He could rightly argue that he isn't an atheist and he isn't anti-God. And most often, that is probably true. Most often, it is not a conscious opposition to God. But that doesn't matter. It is someone's sins that categorize him as one of God's enemies. Theologians sometimes use the word depraved to describe man's spiritual condition before salvation in his unsaved unregenerate unreconciled state someone is considered depraved now being depraved doesn't mean someone is as bad as he could be because most people aren't most people aren't as bad as some people are most people aren't serial killers Most people aren't Ponzi scheme thieves. Most people aren't members of ISIS. Being depraved means that in a spiritual sense, a person is as bad off as he can be. And how much worse off could we be than to be considered alienated, isolated, estranged, separated from God, and actually perceived to be his enemies? Most people aren't as bad as murderer and cannibal Jeffrey Dahmer was. So it's not in our depraved state that we are as bad as we could be because we aren't. But in our sin, we're as bad off as we could be. We're as bad off as we could be because we cannot save ourselves. We're as bad off as we could be because we cannot save ourselves. We're the ones that caused the problem not God. Our sin has separated us from God, so we need to be reconciled to God. We need to be at one with God. That brings up something interesting. The ancient Greek language was an explicit language because it had multiple words that correspond to just one equivalent word in the English language. One example of that is that there are different Greek words that are each translated into our language as the word reconcile or reconciliation. The first Greek word, and please forgive me, I I don't pronounce Greek words well at all. I try, but I don't. The first Greek word is dilosomai, and dilosomai means to change from estrangement to friendship, two people who have both been in odds against one another. This is a two part or two-party reconciliation. That word means to change from alienation, isolation, and estrangement 
change from that state to friendship, to a closeness, to people who have both been at odds against one another. So through this form of reconciliation, mutual enemies, or on a lesser scale, even mutual disinterested persons, become mutual friends. In particular, though, that Greek word is never used in reference to God and us because we're the ones who rejected him. God did not reject us. I might add, that was the reconciliation form that was needed between Steve Jobs and his biological father because both men were at fault in that separation and isolation from one another. The London tabloid reported that although the father, Jandali, wanted to connect with his son, his, quote, Syrian pride, and pride other than self-respect, pride is a sin, his Syrian pride prevented him from initiating direct contact. He said, quote, this might sound strange, but I'm not prepared, even if either one of us were on our deathbed, to pick up the phone to call him. He continued, Steve will have to do that, as the Syrian pride in me does not want him to ever think I am after his fortune. I am not. I have my own money. What I don't have is my son, and that saddens me. And that is sad. Life is too short to die estranged from someone that matters to us. I suggest smashing that pride and reconciling to that person. Numbers of people after the first service said to me, God spoke to me. I've got some people I have to reconcile to. And we should all consider that. The second Greek word translated as reconciliation is katalasso. Katalasso, and that word means it is just one person who is at odds against someone else. Just one person who is at odds against someone else, and it is that disgruntled person that needs to be reconciled to that other innocent person. This is considered one-party reconciliation. Don't miss this. That one-party reconciliation is the particular Greek word that describes man's reconciliation to God. God created man. And in the beginning, remember the garden? God and man were at one together. There was a union and bond between God and man. But then man sinned. Man committed the original sin, and that sin alienated him from God, estranged him from God, isolated him from God. And that meant in that state, man needed to be reconciled to God. One graphic biblical example of this second form of reconciliation would be the prodigal son from Luke 11 verses 11 through 32 and most people are probably aware of that parable the parable of the prodigal son describes a man that had two sons the youngest son insisted his father give him a portion of the father's estate as a premature inheritance now we don't do that now his father's still alive his father is not deceased but he still wanted his portion of his father's estate as a premature inheritance. His father complied to that request. The son then left home and moved to a distant land. He then proceeded to spend all of his inheritance on different forms of unacceptable pleasures. The inferences, parties, prostitutes, and drunkenness. 
He spent and spent and spent until he had nothing left. And then to complicate that situation, there was a severe famine in that land. I might add, the word prodigal means someone given to reckless and wasteful spending. A prodigal is a spendthrift. It was his wasteful spending that made him a prodigal, not just the fact he was upset and rebellious and moved out of the house. The son ended up penniless, and the only employment he could find was in the fields helping a farmer raise pigs. That was humiliating and shameful because most historians are convinced this son was Jewish. And according to ancient Jewish Mosaic law, swine, pigs, were considered unclean animals and unfit for human consumption. But he had no other employment options. This prodigal son was totally destitute. He lacked basic necessities such as food and clothing and shelter. And he understood that it was his own sin and his own recklessness that brought him to that situation. So in an act of deliberate repentance, he decided he would return home and see if his father would accept him as a hired servant because he felt too ashamed and too undeserving to be considered his son. His prodigal did go home, but to his stunned amazement, his father welcomed him home, not as a servant, but as his son, a son who had been lost, but now was found. He even prepared him a feast to celebrate his return. Question, did the father need to be reconciled to the son? The two of them were estranged, separated, apart from one another. There was something there. Did the father need to be reconciled to the prodigal son? Or did that prodigal son need to be reconciled to the father? The prodigal son was the one that needed to be reconciled to the father because he was the one that sinned. He was the one that left his father's house in rebellion. He was the one that became estranged from his father. His father never wanted that. He was the one that wasted his inheritance on self-destructive pleasure. That translates to each one of us. We are the ones at fault and not God. Notice how reconciliation is made possible. This is the means of reconciliation. This is how reconciliation is possible, made possible. Verse 20, and by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, meaning God the Father, by him, Jesus, remember Jesus is the reconciling agent, whether things on earth or things in heaven, notice, having made peace through the blood of his cross, the cross of Jesus. Then notice the first phrase in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. So putting these phrases together from verse 20, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, and then from verse 22, the body of his flesh through death, that means reconciliation has been made possible through the blood of Jesus on the cross, resulting in the death of his human flesh. Reconciliation has been made possible for us to return to God 
be at one with God through the blood of Jesus on the cross, resulting in the death of his human flesh. Blood is a grammatical figure of speech that is used in Scripture to describe sacrifice. In this context, Paul uses the word blood in a figurative sense to represent the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross. It was the death of his human flesh that saves us. But the reason the Bible so often emphasizes the blood of Jesus is because the blood connects Jesus' death with the entire sacrificial system from the Old Testament and announces to us that he was the ultimate and final sacrifice for sin. Remember that over time, the Israelites sacrificed thousands of lambs on an annual basis. We've said before at Passover, there would be more than 250,000 lambs sacrificed at the Jerusalem temple. And those lambs were sacrificed in order to receive temporary forgiveness from sin. It was the lamb's blood that constituted atonement because the lamb's blood was symbolic of that animal's death. Notice the principle, the blood of an innocent substitutionary sacrifice had to be shed in death on behalf of the sinner in order to make forgiveness possible. Notice Leviticus 17 verse 11. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. It is the blood that sustains human life. God said, and I have given it, the blood, I have given the blood to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Each Old Testament animal that was sacrificed, and bullocks would be sacrificed, goats would be sacrificed, the most common sacrificial animal was a lamb. Each animal that was sacrificed on an altar, that animal would literally be ripped apart and would bleed to death on that altar. Uh, Each animal sacrificed predicted that when the ultimate and final sacrifice would come to end all other sacrifices, he would also die a violent, bloody death as each sacrificial animal had done. But although he would be the human sacrifice to end all animal sacrifices, Jesus wouldn't bleed to death as the sacrificial animals did. Old Testament animal sacrifices, such as a lamb, would bleed out on the sacrificial altar. But not Jesus. Jesus bled. And his blood was a sinless, pure blood. But it wouldn't be that blood in and of itself alone that would save us. It would be that violent bloody death of Jesus on the cross. It would be the death the blood represented that would save us. The blood was necessary because it would connect Jesus' death with the Old Testament bloody animal sacrificial system. Jesus couldn't have died through being poisoned. Jesus couldn't have died through hanging from a noose. Jesus couldn't have died being stoned. Jesus couldn't have died being drowned. No, Jesus had to die so as to typify an Old Testament animal sacrifice that had been laid on an altar and literally ripped apart and its blood spilled. He had to die a violent, bloody death, and he did. That was the divine procedure. Man has sinned. Man's sin 
has to be punished according to divine justice. And the punishment God requires is a bloodied sacrificial death. The reason the New Testament speaks so often about Jesus' blood and the reason we sing about Jesus' blood is not to teach us that Jesus bled to death because he didn't bleed to death. Don't miss this. Jesus wasn't a helpless victim on the cross. He willed himself to die. Don't forget that. John 10, verse 17. Jesus said, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life. That's the crucifixion. That I may take it again. That's the resurrection. Verse 18. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Jesus willed himself to die. He voluntarily, of his own volition, gave himself to be that ultimate sacrifice. Jesus bled, and he probably lost a substantial amount of blood, but he didn't die from blood loss. Jesus willed himself to die because he understood that his innocent and sinless sacrifice was the only solution to man's sin problem. Jesus' blood saves us in the sense that his death was the violent, bloody death of the ultimate, final, sacrificial lamb. It was not Jesus' actual blood that saves us, but his sacrificial death on our behalf, as symbolized through the shedding of his actual, literal, and sinless blood. If we could be saved through his blood without his death, then those Old Testament sacrificial animals would have just been bled some on the altar and would not have died there. And that would have been true about Jesus. If Jesus had died but had not bled in the process of that death, then he could not have been a solution to man's sin problem. Because Hebrews 9 verse 22 reads, without shedding of blood, meaning without shedding of sacrificial blood, there is no remission. No remission means there is no forgiveness from sin. Jesus didn't die as some materialized spirit. Jesus died as a man for men in a manner that resembled an ancient animal sacrifice. And it is that violent, bloodied, sacrificial death for sin that saves us if we accept him and accept his sacrifice. Let me push pause for a second and address something people are curious about. There are numerous theories as to what happened to Jesus' blood after his crucifixion. What happened to that blood, that sacrificial blood? In Belgium, there is a Catholic basilica constructed around the 12th century called the Basilica of the Holy Blood. It was named after a famous relic it houses. That relic is a scrap of fabric thought to be stained with the blood of Jesus. That's extremely doubtful. Because it is impossible to determine and document whose blood is on that ancient piece of fabric. Another theory is more interesting. Remember that Joseph of Arimathea, a man of some financial means, and his friend Nicodemus that Jesus met in John 3, those men had gone to, to ask for the body of Jesus so he could receive a decent burial. 
And so Joseph of Arimathea buried Jesus in his own tomb he had just purchased. It is said, according to legend, that Joseph confiscated the dish or cup or chalice that Jesus used at the Last Supper. Remember Jesus at the Passover meal in the upstairs room in Jerusalem? He and his disciples met and ate together. And then Jesus, hours after that, was arrested in the garden. It is said that Joseph somehow confiscated that dish or cup or chalice that Jesus drank from at that Last Supper. And he used that dish or chalice to collect Jesus' blood as he hung from the cross. So I assume he stood at the foot of the cross and tried to get as much blood as possible into that chalice. Joseph collected as much blood as he could in that container, and he intended to put that container of Jesus' blood in the tomb beside Jesus' corpse. Why would he consider doing that? Because some believed it was an ancient Jewish custom that if someone died a violent death, as Jesus did, then as much blood as possible from that dead person was to be collected and then buried with the deceased. And so that was the intent on Joseph's part, but for some reason Joseph never got that chalice or container of Jesus' blood to the tomb before the stone had been moved and closed off the entrance to the tomb. So the legend is that Joseph and his descendants then brought that container or chalice of Jesus' blood to Britain. And over time, that container or chalice was lost, and it became known as the Holy Grail of medieval legends. The books, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, the book, The Da Vinci Code, and subsequent movie, in addition to the numerous fictitious stories about King Arthur, have all made that idea popular that Joseph and his descendants moved to Britain and brought that chalice of Jesus' blood and somehow, over time, that it was lost. The Holy Grail was considered, according to legend, the source of divine favor and the source of all things good. So those legends have different groups searching for that Holy Grail, including the Knights Templar. And the Knights Templar did exist... The Knights Templar uh, was formed about 1119 A.D., just after the First Crusade. And the Knights Templar were an interesting, fascinating cast of characters. But even after supposed centuries of searching, to date, no one has found the Holy Grail. And that's because it doesn't exist. The Holy Grail is a fascinating, interesting, but mythical legend. There is no Holy Grail. But another more feasible suggestion that is popular in some Christian fundamentalist groups is that according to Hebrews 9 and verse 12, Christ collected his own blood from the crucifixion. He then ascended to heaven after his resurrection from the dead, and he sprinkled that blood on the mercy seat in heaven. The exact same action that the Jewish high priest 
would perform on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. The high priest would step behind that thick, heavy curtain into the Holy of Holies uh, in the Jerusalem temple. He would then sprinkle the blood from the sacrificial lamb onto the mercy seat. The mercy seat was that lid made from pure gold that sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant. And if God accepted that sacrifice, then the people would be sins would be atoned for. If God did not accept that sacrificial blood, then the high priest would drop dead on the spot. Uh, And according to this theory, Jesus did the same thing in heaven using his own blood and sprinkling that blood on the mercy seat. It is also said that his blood is still there and that through some mystical means that blood is applied to the soul of each person that receives Jesus. This is a very controversial position. To me that is a serious, serious stretch. I am not convinced of that. I don't know what happened to Jesus' blood after the crucifixion, and it doesn't matter because it was his bloody death that saves us, not just his blood. Bishop John Selby Spong was a former bishop of the Episcopal Church. He died in 2021, I believe in December, at age 90. He was an extremely liberal theologian. So much so, he was voted the 1999 Humanist of the Year. Liberal is probably an understatement. He was a rank and blasphemous heretic. Bishop Spong called for another reformation of the church. According to him, there needed to be a fundamental rethinking of traditional Christian doctrine. He had 12 points in his Reformation plan. Listen to point number six. It reads, the view of the cross as the sacrifice for the sins of the world is a barbarian idea based on primitive concepts of God and must be dismissed. Pretty sure Bishop Sprong has changed his mind about the crucifixion since then. (laughs) Considering where he is. But then notice the reason God has reconciled us to himself. There's a reason. And that reason is shared in verse 22. In the body of his flesh, through death, to present you holy, and holiness means to be separate from sin, and blameless, and above reproach in his sight, meaning in God's sight. That sounds like perfection. God has reconciled us to himself through salvation so he can then present us to himself as being perfect and that perfection includes absolute holiness blamelessness and above reproach that statement is a positional statement because reconciliation itself is a positional spiritual transaction Reconciliation means that in a positional sense, our spiritual status has changed from being estranged and isolated, alienated from God, to becoming a friend to God. Let me explain that. The most important phrase in this verse are those three last words, in his sight. In our Discipleship Essentials course, we discuss both someone's spiritual position and practice. Notice on the note sheet. Someone's spiritual position is what we are in God's sight. Our spiritual position is how God sees us. Our spiritual practice 
is what we are in man's sight. Our practice is how other people see us. Our position is perfect as God sees us after salvation. But our practice experientially on a daily basis is most often less than perfect, and that's the problem. The secret to success as a Christian is to consistently match our spiritual practice to our spiritual position. The secret is to think, speak, act, and react on a consistent basis so that there is no discernible difference between our position as God sees us and our experiential practice as other people around us see us. Matching our practice to our position is sometimes difficult to do here on earth. We struggle doing that. But in heaven, it's an automatic. We will expend no effort to do that. In heaven, our practice and position are a perfect match. Our practice and position are scheduled to be identical, one and the same. So that in heaven, we can literally consider ourselves as being holy, blameless, above reproach, because we're going to be all that. Anything less than perfection would make us unfit for heaven. So that means one of the reasons God reconciles us to himself at salvation through his son Jesus is to prepare us to meet him in heaven. Notice that at the beginning part of verse 20, there was a phrase that has created some controversy. Verse 20, and by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things, not some things, all things to himself, meaning to God the Father. That phrase, all things, presents a problem because some people extrapolate from that phrase a doctrine called ultimate reconciliation or universal reconciliation. This is the idea that God is ultimately going to reconcile all people to himself, meaning that ultimately God's going to bring all people to himself in salvation that there will be no one left unsaved. There are two slightly different perspectives on this subject. One is classic universalism. Classic universalism teaches that all religions are valid and ultimately result in eternal salvation for their constituents. All religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, and others, all religions are valid and ultimately result in eternal salvation for their constituents. This, though, is the more twisted position that some evangelicals hold. Universal or ultimate reconciliation teaches that Christianity is indeed the one and true religion and that because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, all people will be saved during this life or, notice, after this life. Ultimate reconciliation means that Christianity is the true religion. And because of Jesus' sacrifice, all people, all people will be saved and reconciled to God in the end. From a historical perspective, this ultimate reconciliation is just a more modern form of a third century teaching from a theologian named Origen. In our series on hermeneutics, we mentioned Origen and said that Origen interpreted scripture from a, an allegorical perspective and not from a literal perspective, and that creates serious problems. Origen rejected the concept of hell. 
Origen taught it that all things, all created things, including Satan and demons, would ultimately receive salvation in this life or receive salvation at some point after this life. Origen's teachings in ultimate reconciliation were refuted by another famous church father named Augustine and was condemned at a church council in Constantinople in 543 AD. Rob Bell was a prominent name in the emergent church movement. In 2010, he published a controversial book entitled Love Wins. And in that book, he refutes the idea of an eternal hell because he believes that ultimately God's love wins out. And all people, all people are going to receive salvation, be reconciled to God, and be in heaven. He teaches ultimate reconciliation. One more name to add to this false teaching is William Paul Young, more, more often known as Paul Young. He is a Canadian author. His most recognizable publication is a novel entitled The Shack. I'm sure there are people in this room that have read The Shack. Hope he started to read The Shack. She didn't get too far into it and said, I don't think this is a good book. And she set it down. Uh, that book has sold more than 20 million copies. It is said to be in the top 40 best-selling books of all time. The Shack was also made into a movie that grossed some $96 million. Paul Young's latest book, sort of a sequel to The Shack, is called Lies We Believe About God. I cannot recommend his writings in good conscience. I cannot recommend his writings because Paul Young is a false teacher. He teaches ultimate reconciliation in addition to other heretical doctrines such as he argues there is no hell, God isn't sovereign, God submits to us, not that we submit to him, we don't inherit a sin nature from the first man, and sin doesn't separate us from God. The sacrifice of Jesus was the same as child sacrifice, and God hates that, and on and on. So instead of lies we believe about God, the title to that book should be The Lies I Teach About God from Paul Young, because he's a false teacher. People that preach this ultimate reconciliation use this statement we just read from Colossians 1 and verse 20 as biblical support to defend that position. One more time, and by him, Jesus, to reconcile all things to himself, meaning God the Father, by him, Jesus, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Now, this is how we should understand that verse. One, the all things mentioned as being reconciled is a reference to all things that are reconcilable. That phrase, reconcile all things, means all things that are reconcilable. And not all things are reconcilable. Satan is not reconcilable to God because Satan's original insurrection against God is irreversible. Demons are not reconcilable to God. How else do we explain the prophetical passages in Revelation that predict Satan and his demons' permanent incarceration in the ultimate hell called in the Greek language Gehenna? And the same is true of non-Christians that die apart from Christ. In that state, those people are unreconcilable to God. That's mentioned in Revelation 20, verse 15. 
Second, God reconciles all things to himself if those things in question meet the requirement to be reconciled to God. There's a requirement to be reconciled to God. And he reconciles those things to himself if those things have met that requirement. And the biblical requirement to be reconciled to God is to at some point during this lifetime, not after this lifetime, at some point believe on Jesus Christ and receive that reconciliation in salvation. Just one verse as an example, John 3 verse 36, he who believes in the Son, Jesus, has everlasting life. Now notice the contrast. And he who does not believe the Son, Jesus, shall not see life. That's shall not see everlasting life. But instead, the wrath of God abides on him. And the concentrated wrath of God on someone happens in that cosmic geographical compartment called hell. That verse doesn't sound like either classical universalism or ultimate reconciliation because it is apparent that those that do not believe are going to endure the wrath of God in hell. Please understand that the biblical requirement to be reconciled to God is to believe. To believe means to put our complete trust and our total reliance on Jesus and Jesus alone for our salvation. Through the sacrificial bloodied and substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, God has made it possible the potential reconciliation of all people, I believe, but actual reconciliation transpires to only those people that believe and receive Jesus for themselves. Jesus said in his famous Sermon on the Mount that, unfortunately, more people aren't going to receive salvation and be reconciled to him than those that do. More people are going to be in hell than in heaven. Besides, if someone doesn't want Jesus in this lifetime, God isn't going to force that person to want to be with him forever in heaven. That's not going to happen. The last thing is some of the tangible evidence that someone has been reconciled. Tangible evidence that someone has been reconciled. This is found in verse 23. If indeed you, notice the next four words, if you continue in the faith, meaning the Christian faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard. Question, what is the evidence for genuine reconciliation, that someone has been reconciled to God through salvation in Christ. Answer, the evidence of genuine reconciliation is Christian continuance. Christian continuance. The tangible evidence that someone has been reconciled to God through genuine salvation and experience with Jesus is that he or she continues to manifest Christian characteristics. Spiritual defectors and dropouts that aren't restored to the faith, aren't true Christians. Those that are reconciled are those that start and continue and continue and continue in the Christian faith. This person could have occasional doubts. I have. This person could have a ton of questions. I still do. This person might experience a temporary spiritual relapse, and probably all Christians do or have. But overall, this person is someone that continues professing Jesus Christ because continuance is one of the tangible, visible characteristics of a true Christian. Notice 1 John 2, verse 18. 
This is, that is reinforced here. Little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming. Capital A, Antichrist. This Antichrist singular is this prophesied global ruler who tries to establish a one world government during the prophetical tribulation period. He is the ultimate globalist and people we are moving toward globalism at an extraordinary rate of speed. You've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many, many Antichrist, plural, small letter A, Antichrist, have come, by which we know it is the last hour. These other small letter A, Antichrist, plural, according to verse 22, are people who reject certain basic essential teachings about Jesus. These are false teachers. These are spiritual deceivers. And some of them are in the church. These people are counterfeit Christians. And these people are there to deceive others. Verse 19, they, meaning these antichrists, and antichrists are non-Christians, masquerading as Christians, went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, notice, they would have continued with us. There it is. Evidence of salvation and reconciliation to God. They would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. The fact these spiritual counterfeits started out claiming to be Christians and then at some subsequent point in time disassociated themselves from Christianity is verification that they were never a legitimate part of the Christian faith. Just as Paul said in Colossians 1, we just read, John here said that one of the determining factors as to if someone is a true Christian, a genuine Christian, is that he or she continues and continues in the Christian faith. Again, there could be some relapse. There are ups and downs. There could be questions. There could be doubts. But someone overall continues. A true Christian doesn't get in and then decide at some point to opt out. A man said to me, this is recent, a very smart man, graduate of Yale, Ph.D., he said, I tried being a Christian once, but I sort of got disillusioned and decided to move on to something else. He was never a Christian, or he still would be one. A true Christian doesn't swear allegiance to Jesus Christ and then at some point renounce Christianity altogether. The fact someone pretended to be a Christian and then turned his back on what he professed to be is evidence, tangible, visible evidence, that his former Christian profession was, was fraudulent. One of the most recent spiritual defectors, a big name defector, is Joshua Harris. In 1997, he authored a popular book called I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Interesting title. I also kissed dating goodbye the night I got married. <laughs> I haven't dated anyone since. I never was a fan of that book, for the record. 
But it was a popular book, best-selling book. And then from 2004 to 2014, he also pastored a mega church in Maryland called Covenant Life Church. In 2018, Harris disavowed his book. That's good. He stopped its publication. That's good. Then Harris announced he was abandoning his marriage. That's not good. And he also said that he, at that point, had given up his Christian faith. I would suggest that Joshua Harris was never a genuine Christian. He had deceived himself into thinking he was, but he never was, or else he would still be one. One of the most gratifying things to me as a pastor, as I've gotten older, is to hear from people that have come to Jesus earlier on in previous pastorates. I've pastored seven congregations. This is the seventh and final congregation that I pastor. And uh, you, can, you can ask Kopi, she can verify this all the time. Letters, emails, texts, phone calls. I receive from people I have not seen or heard of or thought about for decades. People that have come to Christ, uh, I've led them to Christ, or they came to Christ through one of my churches, whatever. And these people just want me to know that they are still serving Jesus and still continuing in the faith. And nothing, nothing makes me, brings me more joy and happiness than to hear that. Nothing. Spiritual continuance is tangible evidence that someone has been reconciled to God. Sometimes, if two parties are alienated from one another, if two parties are estranged and isolated from one another, there may be hostility between them on both parts. But if one of them receives Jesus and is reconciled to God through salvation, that reconciled person is then able to initiate reconciliation with that still estranged person. An example of that is Josh McDowell. I've mentioned him before. He's a Christian apologist and prolific author. He has authored and or co-authored 150 books. He has lectured and debated on more college and university campuses than anyone else in human history. In his book, More Than a Carpenter, that has exceeded more than 30 million copies in 120 languages, in that book, and I give that book out like candy, in that book, he commented on some changes he experienced after salvation, after receiving Jesus and his reconciliation to God. He said this, I'm quoting, There's another area that changed that I'm not proud of. It was hatred. It wasn't something outwardly manifested, but kind of an inner grinding on me. The one person I hated more than anyone else in the world was my own father. I despised him. He was the town alcoholic. If you're from a small town and one of your parents is an alcoholic, then everyone knows about that. My friends would come to high school and make jokes about my father being drunk. They didn't think it bothered me. I was like other people, laughing on the outside, but I was crying on the inside. Josh was raised on a farm. He said, I'd go out into the barn and see my mother beaten so badly that she couldn't get up. And she just laid there in the manure behind the cows. If friends were coming over, I would take my father literally 
tie him up in the barn and park the car around the silo where it couldn't be seen. And then to avoid embarrassment, we would tell our friends our father had to go somewhere. I don't think anyone could hate someone more than I hated my own father. Maybe five months after I made a decision to accept Jesus Christ, a love from God through Jesus started inundating my life, and it turned my hatred upside down. It enabled me to look at my father square in the eyes and say, Dad, I love you. I love you. Considering some of the things I'd done that really shook him up when he heard that. It was after I transferred to a private university, I was in a serious car accident with my neck and traction. I was taken home. I'll never forget my father coming into my room and asking me, Son, how can you love a father like me? I said, Dad, six months ago, I despised you. And then I shared with him my conclusions about Jesus Christ. And I said, Dad, I let Jesus come into my life. I can't explain it completely, but as a result of this relationship I have with him, I have found the capacity to love and accept not only you, but accept other people just the way they are. Forty-five minutes later, one of the greatest thrills of my life occurred. Someone from my own family, someone who knew me so well, I couldn't pull the wool over his eyes. My own father said to me, son... If God can do in my life what I've seen him do in yours, then I want to give him that opportunity. And right then and there, my father prayed with me and trusted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. Hallelujah. Usually changes after someone's salvation happen over a period of days, weeks, months, or even years. But my father was changed right before my eyes. It was as though someone had reached inside of him and turned on a light bulb. I have never seen such a rapid change in someone before or since. My father, the alcoholic, touched alcohol only once after that. He got it as far as his lips, and that was it. He said, no. He didn't need it anymore. People, that's what Jesus can do. Let's bow our heads. There's only two categories of people in this room. Those that have been reconciled to God and are now His friend because those people have received Jesus and salvation and through that spiritual transformation have been reconciled to God. So there are those that are reconciled and then there are those that are unreconciled, have never been reconciled. There are those that have never receive Jesus, those that are unsaved, those that are still alienated and estranged and separated from God and are actually considered one of his enemies. But if you're here this morning and you aren't certain you've been reconciled to God, if you're not his friend because of your sin and you have no Savior, you don't have Jesus, my prayer for you is I urge you, I beg you, please see me after the service. We can sit down this afternoon if you have time, or we can make an appointment soon, and I can share you how, with you how you can know, you can know that you're one of the reconciled, that you're no longer alienated and estranged from God, but that you're one of His friends, that you and He are together forever. 
please do that. If there's any doubt, if there's any question, please see me. Father in heaven, I want to thank you most of all that because of your son and his violent, bloodied, sacrificial death on the cross, he made salvation possible. And as a part of that salvation, he has made reconciliation possible. Whereas we were formerly in our sin, estranged from you, isolated from you, separated from you, now because of, of his sacrifice, we can, we can have a friendship with you that will never end. And Father, I would pray for everyone in this room who hasn't had that experience. Please, don't let them rest until they do. I pray that they'll see me even after this service. Again, thank you so much for doing so much for us, to making it possible for us to have you in our lives, to be reconciled to you forever, and to enjoy your presence forever. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.